strong voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Welcome to Strong Voices, coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios on Arundel Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911 on 8 FM in Bundwa Alice Springs via the Karma app and online at www.karma.com.au. Today is Thursday, the 12th of September 2019. My name is Damien Williams. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up on today's program, in our first story, we will hear the latest development with the cashless debit cards and a bill that was introduced to the House of Reps. And we will also hear about a standoff between bulldozers and traditional owners down in Victoria, where the proposed Victorian Western Highway is threatening to bulldoze 800-year-old Jab Warang trees. And finally, we will hear about what it, what it's like to perform in the circus from a former Chuki dancer. And we will also hear the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news. Hey mob, this is Patrick Johnson and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. The Federal Minister for Government Services, Stuart Robert, introduced the, the Income Management to Cashless Debit Card Transition Bill to the House of Representatives on Wednesday. If successful, the bill will extend existing trials of the cashless card an additional year to 2021, but also expand it, expand it to the Northern Territory and Cape York. This would mean some 20,000 welfare recipients could, could be transitioning from the basics, basics card to the cashless debit card if the bill were to pass. The card is currently being trialled in areas such as Sejuna in South Australia and the Goldfields region in Western Australia. Carl Dowling spoke with John Patterson, spokesperson for APONT, the Aboriginal Peak Organisation's Northern Territory, and began by asking him to explain how the cashless card would work. In summary, it's a card that uh, quarantines a certain percentage of welfare benefits that individuals are receiving in the Northern Territory. Most of our uh, welfare recipients are using the basic card and uh, the the break-up of their uh, income is 50% quarantine, the other 50% uh, is discretional, that they can do whatever they want with. Under the uh, new cashless welfare debit card, um, in other jurisdictions, I understand it's 
80% quarantined and 20% discretionary. And in the Northern Territory, it'll remain. Those that are currently on the basic card will remain or retain their 50% quarantine and 50% discretion. Uh, however, any new applicants will go to the 80-20 split. Look, we, the uh, the Aboriginal Peak Organisations Northern Territory, have concerns around the broader uh, mandatory implementation of this of this card. Our preferred position is that uh, it should be an opt-in process rather than this blanket compulsory everybody in and you don't have a choice of whether you want to be in it or not. Uh, and our reasoning for that is there are many Aboriginal constituents out there that uh, have worked their entire lives managing their own income, managing their own affairs, financial affairs, very effectively. And all of a sudden they're, they're caught up in this government top-down fiscal policy arrangement, welfare policy arrangement, and that'll have them having their income quarantined and the only way they can, uh, you know, they'll only have 50% discretion on the use of, uh, of that income. We're also concerned and uh, we're not convinced because the, uh, there's a, an evaluation, recent evaluation of the cashless welfare card by the Australian National Audit uh, Office and that found no evidence that it was having a positive or beneficial result. No evidence at all. And in particular on that that uh, audit report, you know, they were talking about in the conclusion about how the, the monitoring and evaluation of the policy was labelled as inadequate and, and therefore it was actually hard to determine whether or not it was actually reducing social harm. Should, should we be talking about expanding a policy to, you know, some... 23,000 welfare recipients in the NTN Cape York if we're not even sure if it's worth Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And that's why we're, you know, our position is calling on governments to put a pause on this uh, until we have further investigations or, you know, con- conduct a, an inquiry, come and speak with the, uh, the community members that are going to be recipients of this top-down punitive um, uh, income management program. You know, I've had... Many individuals make representation to uh, to myself and others. We've had um, others speaking out publicly just recently for a number of those communities that are either on basic card or about to go onto the cashless welfare card, um, saying that uh, it's putting them in, the, in a position of embarrassment, shame, enormous stress, hardship. You know, I mean, Aboriginal families are finding it difficult to survive payday to payday at the moment. And to have governments putting these punitive, stringent conditions on that they can only have discretionary expenditure on a certain percentage of their benefits is just causing unnecessary trauma and stress on families. And that's consistently the message we're hearing from not just here in the Northern Territory, but from those other towns and uh, uh, regions where they've um, implemented them throughout the nation. And we believe that um, until we have a further understanding uh, of the impacts and hopefully there's some further evaluation or reviews that are, that are going on to demonstrate whether this is a, an effective measure or um, it's a waste of taxpayers' dollars. And I'd love to know how much it's costing for the implementation of this, or for this program to be rolled out. Now, here's the solution. We're offering, you know, we just don't want to, don't want to um, 
criticised, provide criticism all the time, but we've also got alternative solutions and approaches. And one of those is to use the investment that there are currently that's currently allocated for the implementation of this uh, welfare benefit card is to pump it into industries where there's employment opportunities, fund apprenticeships, fund training programs that are relevant and meaningful to communities where there's employment opportunities. I mean, it's about building community, organisation and individual capacity so that we hopefully can skill up a workforce out there and get them competitive and into real jobs, real income, where our mob can actually accrue sick leave, annual leave, long service leave, where currently while you know we're peddling this same old, same old welfare benefit scheme, uh, which doesn't allow any of our mob to any of those sorts of entitlements. You were talking about some of the negative impacts that we've seen uh, from welfare quarantining over the years, whether it's like things like shame or you know people doing it tough in terms of being yeah. able to manage those little bits of money. Do you think welfare quarantining can lead to positive impacts, or have you seen it lead I, I to positive? Seen any, I haven't seen any evidence. Admittedly, there are some, but it, I think they're only in the minority that would put their hands up and want to opt into the program and, and or the scheme. And that's what we're saying, that governments should allow the flexibility people to opt in or opt out. Opt in, I think, is the preferred uh, preferred option. And we invest the, you know, like I said, the uh, the huge budgets that are being expended on this particular program to be better used in some of those more positive uh, opportunities. Now, when the bill was actually read in, in Parliament, it was actually described as a bottom-up approach. Is that something that you've seen happen no, so far? No, definitely not a bottom-up approach. Mm. The people I've consulted and, and spoken to and heard on radio just in the last couple of days have said there's been no consultation. In actual fact, representatives from the Arnhem Land Progress Association, which run the community stores in, in, in the Northern Territory, have had no engagement, no genuine consultation. No one's been out to talk to them. From their perspective, it's stripping of their, of their uh, basic human rights uh, and self-determination and, and definitely a top-down model. And just finally then for you, John, you, your message moving forward to, to the government in, in terms of welfare quarantine, as we know, we've seen uh, you know, people's welfare being quarantined since back in 2007. Mm. As part of the intervention now, under the guise of Stronger Futures, what, yep. what needs to change and, and how do we move forward? What's your message? Well, my message is... Aboriginal Territorians have been used as guinea pigs, have been on trial pilot projects for over a decade, probably two decades now. And the message that I'm getting is we're sick of that. We want our rights back. We want to make our decisions. We want our self-determination to be instilled again. And let's build, let's work with our communities. Let's build their capacities so that they can stand on their two feet, so they can get into their own businesses so that they can become competitive in the workforce. That's the vision that we should be having. That was John Patterson, spokesperson for APONT, the Aboriginal Peak Organisation's Northern Territory, ending that report from Karma's Kyle Dowling. We'll be back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey, this is Cathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. 
down to Victoria, where an ongoing dispute about the removal of sacred trees to make way for Victoria's Western Highway du- uh, duplication continues to escalate. Lydia Thorpe, uh, Kunai, uh, a Ganai Kunai and Gundajmara woman has called on the Victorian government to reroute the planned road to save centuries old and sacred birthing trees. It goes back quite a few years actually where we had a registered Aboriginal party under the cultural heritage legislation in Victoria who comprised of five members from one family and a private company at that who actually signed off on the deal with Vic Roads and and Major Roads, which are state government entities. They signed off on that deal and they were set to benefit quite considerable amount of money as well as land. We're still investigating what kind of money was handed over, but we certainly know quite a large parcel of land was handed over as part of that deal. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that traditional owners on the ground found out, particularly Japarung people like myself, and, you know, found out that ancient ancestor trees, 800-year-old birthing trees and scarred trees and, and grandfather trees were about to be desecrated to widen a, a part of a, a road in Western Victoria to allow for safety but also allow for two minutes to be taken off people's travel times from Melbourne to Adelaide. The Japarung area is incredible. Where we have the Japarung Embassy, we have a 800-year-old birthing tree. That birthing tree has been culturally modified over hundreds of years and it's, it's just inc- remarkable how our old people, our ancestors, created this shelter for our women to not only birth in, but cooking utensils were found very deep within that that tree, which was somehow overlooked in the first cultural heritage mapping process. Then you go further down the track and we have what they call a a directional tree. This tree, it's like it's just been handcrafted. It's such an ancient ancestor tree that tells a story in itself. And then we have a number of scarred trees. We have a total of 280 trees that have cultural significance and a total of 3,000 trees that need to be removed as part of this highway upgrade. So the area is quite significant to Japarung people, women in particular. And as a Japarung woman myself and and going out there and feeling the energy and the, the spiritual connection that I feel this is our old people and our our land talking to us and calling out for our help to protect this area for our future generations. It's hard to even comprehend that some of the mob might even be prepared to hand over their heritage, their culture, for dollars. Absolutely, and unfortunately we, we see this not only happening in Victoria, we see this happening around the country. It's not about fighting amongst ourselves, which is what the government always portray us to be doing. This is about the government and the processes that they put in place that divide us as a people. And so we need to question these pieces of legislation and policies that we're meant to work within that actually creates all of this division 
and allows this kind of manufactured consent to occur, which only means desecration and destruction of our land and our water and our sacred sites. Divide and conquer. This has been a long-running tactic, governments, and this comes at a, a pretty critical time for Victoria because you're going through a treaty process at the moment. Yes, it seems to be the three Labor governments in the Northern Territory, Queensland and Victoria who come up with this fantasy of a treaty conversation. But look what's going on in these in these state and territories. You've still got the intervention in the NT. They're talking at Northern Territory Parliament right now about our burial site and bringing a white law, a colonial law, over the most oldest law on the planet. Then you go over to Queensland and you look at how they extinguish native title rights of the Wanganjangaloo people and want to talk treaty. And then you come down to Victoria and, you know, the incarceration rates, the, the death in custody and the continued desecration of our country while well, they want to talk treaty. Well, it's not treaty. How can we say that this is even treaty when go back to the legislation that was passed in the Victorian Parliament when I was there and I called for the government to acknowledge that we are the sovereign people of our land and the whole parliament voted that down because they didn't want to acknowledge we as sovereign people. So I think that treaty, the word has been bastardised and that they're turning treaty into administrative and bureaucratic processes when that's not the treaty that we are talking about or want. We need a treaty that's internationally scrutinised and that means that you know our human rights are no longer breached in our own country and that means no more deaths in custody, no more desecration of our land and water, no more stolen children and the list goes on. Our people around the country need to really understand what free, informed, prior consent means. There's been this process of manufacturing consent from our people for too long. Ilua's, the registered Aboriginal party process, this consent is happening without our grassroots traditional owners even having a say. So let's rethink how the companies, government, mining interests are actually gaining consent because it's disempowering our people on the ground and it's destroying our land and water. Aboriginal Victoria, the Federation of Victorian Traditional Owner Corporation and the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council signed off. How are those bodies made up and who controls them? Well, Aboriginal Victoria is a department of the Victorian government and the Victorian Aboriginal Heritage Council is appointed by the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs. The Federation of Victorian Traditional Owners only represents six traditional owner corporations, not 38 nations that we have in this state. And they recently received $13 million from the Victorian government. So, uh, yeah, I really don't take uh, anything that those three entities say um, that, you know, say that they represent our people because they don't. They're, they're, two of them are, are, are government-controlled entities and one of them is heavily funded by the government. So 
I believe they all have a conflict of interest and that they don't speak for our people. The problem is, is we've never been able to sit down and talk about the other options. There are a number of other options available. The government here is being very stubborn. They're ignoring our request to meet and they're, you know, they're going ahead business as usual. There's been a number of mapping processes that have taken place recently that the government have ignored also. And part of that process and part of the mapping process that we've had done wasn't provided to the Federal Minister for the for Environment in our call for heritage protection of the site. So the Victorian government actually held information back from the Federal Minister when she was making a decision to protect this part of the country. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, inadequacies that have been occurring throughout this whole drama to save our our country that the government are holding back on. And all we want to do as Japarung women and Japarung people is sit down with the government, look at all the information that's been provided by experts in in the field, and let's negotiate an outcome. But they refuse to meet with us. They only want to deal with the corporations that they fund and continue with their manufactured consent to destroy our land. We're peaceful people, we're conciliatory people, and we're very patient people. And we've been like that for 230 years since this invasion. So we are trying to reach out to both government and the entities who say that they represent us and say, let's sit down over two days and work this out. Let's come to a compromise. Let's come. Let's negotiate an outcome where people don't get arrested and well, that we can protect, you know, that, that part of the country. So we are trying to conciliate here, but as I said, the government are being very stubborn and they just want to get the work done. Paul Wiles there talking with uh, former Victorian Greens member Lydia Thorpe. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. Hey you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. That's right, you are tuned into Karma Radio, uh, tune into Strong Voices here on Karma Radio, 8kin FM. Now it's time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country and joining me in the studio I have uh, Karma's Paul Wiles and Carl Dowling. Guys, good morning. Good morning, Damien, and good morning to all our listeners. Good morning. Uh, well, first off, Kyle, you have uh, some other responses to the Akash's, uh welfare debit cards. Could you tell yeah, us? Yeah, that's right. We heard earlier from um, John Patterson, who's a spokesperson for APON, um, which is the you know peak Aboriginal organisations. And uh, obviously, Aboriginal organisations not not happy with the potential expansion of the, the cashless debit card here in the Northern Territory. Uh, Labor and the Greens have also... Uh, expressed their disappointment and, and I guess their concerns about it. The Greens have actually accused the Coalition of, of attempting to entrench the cashless welfare card by stealth. Uh, the Shadow Minister for Social Services, uh, Linda, the, sorry, the Shadow Social Services Minister, Linda Burney, said Labor did not support a national rollout of the card but has yet to determine whether it will support an extension of its operation in Sejuna and East Kimberley. So that's part of the whole bill that's going forward as well. The pre-existing areas that are having the trials are going to be uh, 
running those trials for an additional year. But the main concern I think that has come out of it is that, uh, you know, a audit report showed that it was quite hard to actually determine whether or not the policy itself was actually having positive social impacts and was actually a, a more cost-effective method. So I think that's where a lot of concerns are, is how much money is then going to be thrown into this and, and concerns about whether or not the actual payment itself is, is going to be making any difference. And again, the concerns of just having people... Uh, quarantining people's welfare, essentially. Yeah, and that's what John was saying earlier as well. You know, we um, f- wanted to find out how much it is actually going to cost to put people on this mm. um, system. Yeah. Well, um, Paul, on to you. We have some more news about the National Aboriginal Art Gallery. Yes, the uh, the saga continues. Uh, the Alice Springs Town Council uh, released a statement uh, earlier in the week saying uh, it had uh, rejected the uh, Territory Government uh, offer of um, money to relocate the um, the town council, the library, all of the uh, council facilities that are on that block uh, and relocate them. Uh, they says the, uh, the council um, release said... Uh, As a major project for Alice Springs and one that stands to considerably benefit Alice Springs now and in the future, Council is committed to working through the details of any proposed plan effectively and progressively. Uh, But at the same time, Council does not support the Territory Government in its commitment to the National Aboriginal Art Gallery and its construction in Alice Springs and therefore is determined to work progressively with NT government towards finding working solutions. Well, uh, we're going round and round in circles again. The uh, Territory Government, uh, Minister for Tourism and Culture, Lauren Moss, and uh, in a joint statement with the member for Breitling, Dale Wakefield, expressed some disappointment and said that unfortunately what we have seen is a council that is divided, lacks leadership and where individual councillors have put their own political interests above the interests of the people of Alice Springs. Uh, They say that uh, there has been no real solutions from council after two years of intense negotiations. Yes, uh, like you said, it just seems like um, it's going around and around in circles and, um, yeah. But there is um, a potentially $70 million on the table from the Territory Government, um, $50 million towards the National Aboriginal Art Gallery and the $20 million that the Government uh, was prepared to uh, um, hand over to the Council for the relocation of those um, the relocation of the current um, facilities to a new location and also the transference of ownership of the land. And, I mean, you know, it's not like Alice Springs is a really, really big town, um, you know, having the art gallery on the fringe of, you know, on the outskirts of town could still be a viable um, thing. You mean you could, uh, it would um, draw more people into that area as well and more development could happen but um, yeah I'm just wondering well, well that's what we heard from some of the Aboriginal groups beforehand was a desire to have it past the gap um, it seems like that's not the thing and that essentially it is going to be pushed quite heavily in town and obviously that council location is quite a big block and that's the location that looking like they want to proceed but like Paul said it's it's sort of in that same situation of 
we still don't know where it's going to go. No, it's going to be an ongoing thing. Well, on that note, uh, uh, Paul and Kyle, thanks for joining me for the news from around the country. No worries, Damien. Thank you. We'll be right back with more Strong Voices after this. I can see clearly now Hi, this is Dawn Fraser, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Ever thought of running away and joining the circus? Well, our next guest ju- did just that. Jillabulu Riley from Far North Queensland has been a pr- performing through dance and acrobatics from a young age, and he joins me to speak about his journey uh, to becoming a circus performer. All right, well, um... 25. I'm an indigenous circus performer working at a circus house here down in Melbourne. I come from Kukumulurigi, far north Queensland. Went to school through Cranda High and then later on went to Cairns High. Spent a lot of time with my cousins going out mucking around doing kids stuff out on Mona Mona Mission. That's in Cranda doing backflips and all that sort of fun stuff along the rivers. Also did a lot of dancing up at Laura Aboriginal Dance Festival, and that's held every two years, and that was for the Mayi Woomba dance troupe. Finished high school, once I graduated, I auditioned for NASDA and uh, NICA, and then I decided to go to the circus, which was NICA, National Institute of Circus Arts Australia, and um, there I graduated from university for three years at Swinburne here in Melbourne, in Paran on Chapel Street. Once I graduated from there, I then later on went back home to work on a cattle station for ILC, Indigenous Land Corporation. Did that for about a year and then wasn't too good for me and then so left that job and then um, went down to Mossman Gorge and decided to become a Indigenous Sports and Rec Officer. Did that for quite a while and uh, I started missing the performing arts aspect of life, being able to travel and all that. So I uh, unfortunately broke my ankle while I was working for the PCYC um, as an Indigenous Sport Recreation Officer. So when I broke my ankle, um, I had to stop work for a bit. So got myself back on track and then got myself back into the circus. Started with um, a dance company from Gilawinku, Elko Island, uh, called uh, Jukimala. And then I did a first opening night with them in Perth at the Fringe and uh, just so happened to tear my peck. So back home to Cairns it was and had to get healed back up again and then finally now I'm back on the road again with Circus Horse a year later. Man, that would have been painful tearing your peck. Yeah. Oh. Straight off the bone. And so now, brother, when you were a little kid, you know, did you ever think that you would ever be a part of the circus? Did you th- did you want to go to the circus? No, I didn't really want to go to the circus. I just I just wanted to become a mechanic, you know. And um, once I hit grade eight, you know, I there was lots of dancing happening at the school that I was at, Cairns High, and uh, I fell in love with um, dance then and there. Um, once I fell in love with dance, I performed with them overseas, and then I saw Cirque du Soleil for the first time while I was in Macau, which is in China. Once I saw that Cirque du Soleil, I was like, oh, man, wouldn't it be fun to do that? And then through high school, um, yeah, I got opportunity to go down to Melbourne and then do a, a black flip program with Circus Oz. I did the black flip program, and then 
they said, oh, you're a bit young, but there's auditions for NICA. So they, they got me an audition for NICA, drove us over to NICA, and then I did an audition. And then probably about three or four weeks later, I found out that I was a successful applicant for the audition and I just, you know, decided whether to go on to do dance or to do circus. And I said, oh... I'll just do circus and then I can also do dance while I'm down there. And then that's how I got on to doing the circus. Well, that is crazy, brother. Tell us a bit about um, what kind of um, things that that you do in the circus. Aboriginals, we're very good on our feet. You know, we're good AFL players, we're good NRL players. We're good um, athletes all around. So I just, I was best at um, acrobatics. So tumbling rotation through air yeah that was my favorite and i was quite very good at it do you so do you do any of the um what is what's that the, the flying trapeze stuff yeah i do do the flying trapeze yep wow that'd be scary i reckon yeah <laughs> how did you how did you have to like sort of warm up and and try to um do that oh brother sometimes some of these things in the circus just they look like having fun like you know, we got swings into the rivers and stuff like that, so I just, it was natural for me. I couldn't wait to jump on it, actually. Just imagine you're swinging off the rope into the water. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> just like that. And so now, you know, the stuff that you guys do, I mean, it is it is very taxing on your body. You know, you have to be fit, flexible. Uh, what kind of things do you have to do to prepare to be able to do the stuff that you do in the circus? Um, so we get a, we get a a um, two-hour call, so we have like two hours to warm up before we actually go on stage. So, you know, we're stretching, we're running through our routine backstage, you know, we're practicing some of the tricks that we need to do in the show. And um, also we get about uh, 30 minutes on stage before the audience comes in, so we get to do a bit of practice with the lights on in a practice state. And uh, we get to practice with the loud music while we're doing performing. So we get to do that just before everyone gets to come see you and then when the doors open and just before we go on stage you know we we're running through it in our head just like a rugby player would go through it in his head you know in the locker room we're doing the exact same thing except you know we're we're stretching different muscles and we're we're practicing for different skills and then once the doors open and that's it that's showtime baby gotta jump out stage put a smile on your face do the biggest backflip you can side flips swing on that trapeze and make it look effortless and I mean like you were saying before you know you got to be prepared in your mind and, and, and thinking about what you're going to do uh, you know especially when you if you're working with someone else as well what kind of thing what kind of things are you thinking about when you are um, in the performance and um, wanting to do well uh, well there's a trust aspect there within within us cast you know because sometimes we've got to catch each other or else they'll fall on the ground so we've got to um make sure that when we're on stage that we remember to where we're supposed to be at what time. And, um, of course, all accidents are running through your head, but if they're running through your head, then obviously you have a good memory of where they could occur. So when you're on stage, you know, you, just before the, um, the big trick happens, you know, you're, you've got it in the back of your head and you move into the right position just at the right time. And just again, brother, for those uh, that are listening in, how long have you been performing with uh, Aurora and Circus Oz? So with Circus Oz, I joined up in April, and then I started performing with them. Our first show was in uh, late June, 
and that was a Victorian regional tour. After the Victorian one, we went over to Alice Springs, and we performed in the... Um, I forget the... Yeah, that's it, yeah. So we performed in there, and then we went up to Darwin and Tiwi Island. So I've been performing with them all the way up until this date now. My contract finishes on the 6th of October with Circus Oz. After this, what, what's uh, in, the, in the cards for Jilly? Yeah, so after this show, once I finish this contract, there's also, we have to sign another contract for next year for the same show. So the show got sold next year in, um, I think, Sydney, uh, New South Wales region, um, possibly Queensland and maybe Tasmania. So I also have a bit of work lined up for next year. Um, and then basically it's just about, you know, keeping my body in, in shape and um, being ready for the next job to to go wherever they need me. So you're hoping to stick with um, Circus Oz until your body gives out? (laughs) Um, No. You know, I've done so many different things so far. You know, I just, I want to go, brother, I want to join all the companies, different ones, you know. I don't want to show off, but I just want to, I want to be there and feel different companies and, you know, just have fun and, man, just live life to its fullest, eh? You know, I'm a bit of a rambler, man, a bit of a traveller. Never in the one place for too long. So hopefully one day, you know, being the, in one of the biggest circuits that uh, do the world? Yeah, possibly. I mean, Circus Oz does the world, but, you know, something like Cirque du Soleil maybe in the in the future. Mm. That's cool. something to tick off a bucket list. For all the young mob out there listening in um, to the to the program as well, what... Um, what would what would you say to them if they wanted to do what you were doing? Best thing would be to do is to finish high school, start practicing now while you're young. Uh, you know we've got YouTube now available for us to practice with. Also, if there's any community circuses out there, sometimes I can help with uh, referring places to train. But also, I know Nike does a um, certificate program, which you can be still underage. You have to be in high school. They can travel you to Melbourne and you can come to Melbourne and just begin to learn how to do a bit of circus. And obviously telling others about your dreams. The more people you tell, the more the more connections you have, you know. And Chinese whispers, you know, it's, it's a good game, but it's also real life, you know. You tell someone something and then they tell someone else about you and then, oh, yeah, Jilly, he wants to do dance. Thought you were like talk to him oh yeah I like to do dance but I also like to do circus oh circus okay I know this person and then that person they come back around give you email phone number asking out their dance teacher or asking you know the, just going into those sort of venues uh, those places in the, in your town or close by you know that actually do dance and that and just asking questions you know how, oh I really like to do circus um, do you know anyone who could who I could talk to about getting myself into circus and uh, also circus Oz Give them a call. They're more than willing to help out. Dillabaloo, Riley, thanks very much for joining us here on Karma Radio. Thanks for having me. That was high-flying Jillabaloo Riley talking about his journey to becoming to joining the circus. And um, that brings us to the end of the show for today. Thanks to all our guests um, for joining us on the program. And uh, you can uh, check out all our stories at www.karma.com.au. And I uh, hope you have a lovely day today. And, uh, yeah. Catch up. Strong voices.
Chai Kirtan. <laughs>